0: 1 through 7, and I'll have the verses up on the slides per the usual. So, um, and this is kind of picking up where we'd left off in the sermon series on Acts um, a few weeks ago. Um, It says, Now during those days when the disciples were increasing in number, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews because their widows were being neglected in the daily distribution of food. And the twelve called together the whole community of the disciples and said, It is not right that we should neglect the word of God in order to wait on tables. Therefore, friends, select from among yourselves seven men of good standing, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, whom we we may appoint to this task, while we, for our part, devote ourselves to prayer and to serving the Word. And what they said pleased the whole community. And they chose Stephen, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit, together with Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte of Antioch. They had these men stand before the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them, and the word of God continued to spread. The number of the disciples greatly increased in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Um, if you join me in prayer real quick, God, I just pray that um, the words you have for the people here today um, and the people listening later online, pray that those words would come through and um, just whatever I've brought would just be taking a back seat to that. Amen. So, uh, when I was reading this passage to um, prepare for the sermon, the big thing that jumped out at me was, oh, the church is finally getting big enough that it has organizational problems, right? (laughs) Uh, And I think this is especially noteworthy if you cast your mind back to a few weeks and a few chapters ago. I mean, big like miraculous stuff has happened in this community. Um and, and not just like people being healed and stuff, but even I wouldn't call them miracles, but like these social things of people sharing their property with one another. Um and not only that, but there's sort of this like the the literal fear of God is on these people because someone got struck down dead for being just like kind of dishonest. Even with all that, that was not enough to prevent this kind of institutional angst. And uh, something else I noticed is that the unfairness that they were grumbling about fell along a cultural divide. Now, I, th- I think it's important to point out that everybody in this community, or at least the vast majority of these new Christians, are all still Jewish at this point. They all have the same religious background and the same ethnicity, and yet... It says, the Hellenists complained against the Hebrews. Well, what does that mean? Well, the Hebrews are probably Jewish people who had lived in Judea, so either Jerusalem itself or the surrounding area all their lives. Um, The Hellenist Jews are people who um, quite likely either were living abroad in the Roman Empire or had been very influenced by Greek and Roman culture It may be adopted some things. Maybe the more educated among them are reading their Aristotle and that kind of stuff. So this is, I I mean, it's kind of a fine cultural distinction. And yet even that difference is enough that it made neglecting a set of people really, really easy. Even that very small cultural difference. And I think these sort of problems are very common. Um, People want things to be fair and things won't be fair by default. Somebody has to kind of be intentional about making sure that happens. And, and in churches and secular organizations alike, it's usually the leaders who get called on to fix it. Like when people find unfairness, it's, it's pretty rare that people just like, oh, you know, let's work this out among ourselves. They go to leadership and they say, hey, this is unfair. You need, you need to fix this, leader person. And because these problems are are ones we're so likely to encounter, uh, I want to take kind of a hard look at the actions of the Twelve Apostles today and ask, did they really do the right thing? Are they actually a model for us in how we should deal with problems in the church, especially organizational problems like unfairness? I want to take the view of a, a skeptical old Hellenistic widow Right? who maybe has heard what the apostle said, you know, it's not right for us to leave the word of God that we may wait tables, and she says, okay, Pete, okay, John, Jesus could take bread and fish and feed 5,000 people, but you, you can't be bothered. Our Lord and Savior, our Messiah, who you've been telling us about, could do this, but you can't be bothered. Okay, I see how it is. And when Luke writes that what the apostles said pleased the whole community, we might be inclined to ask, is he is he maybe just glossing over <laughs> some of maybe there was some like continued grumblings or some just begrudging assent, like, ah, fine, whatever, good enough? And I think that's a good question uh, that that to to think back about the feeding of the five thousand. Why, doesn't miracle, why isn't there a miracle for this, right? Why doesn't God just step in, maybe strike the people responsible for the oversight with leprosy for a little while, just not forever, just to straighten them out a little bit, and, and then maybe miraculously provide food, right? I mean, that's, that's within bounds of a biblical story. And indeed, if, if Luke was willing to play fast and loose with the facts and write a little propaganda, that would have made a better story, right? I mean, there's, there's special effects, there's drama, there's action, and instead we get a business meeting. Like, this is kind of, kind of boring. Um, and I, I think there's actually really good reason why the, the community of disciples would have been pleased by this answer. And one of those reasons actually connects back to the fact that they had this shared Jewish heritage. They had a lot of stories in uh, the Hebrew Bible about these kinds of leadership struggles. Uh, I'm going to read one from Numbers chapter 11. So context, Moses and the people of Israel have escaped Egypt. Moses is leading them into the promised land through the desert. And it's the ancient desert, and it sucks. And there's no food, so God provides manna for them to eat. Uh, And then this happens. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and said, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt, also known as the land of slavery, at no cost. Also the cucumbers, melons, leeks, onions, and garlic. But now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. Um, And then a few verses down, Moses picks up the story. Moses heard the people of every family wailing at the entrance to their tents. The Lord became exceedingly angry, and Moses was troubled. And Moses, not to be outdone, starts to complain himself. He says, he asks the Lord, Why have you brought this trouble on your servant? What have I done to displease you that you put the burden of all these people on me? Did I conceive all these people? Did I give them birth? Why do you tell me to carry them in my arms as a nurse carries an infant to the land you promised on oath to their ancestors? Emphasis mine, obviously. Where can I get meat for all these people? They keep wailing to me. Give us meat to eat. I cannot carry all these people by myself. The burden is too heavy for me. If this is how you're going to treat me, please go ahead and kill me. If I have found favor in your eyes, and do not let me face my own ruin. The Lord said to Moses, Bring me 70 of Israel's elders, who are known to you as leaders and officials among the people. Have them come to the tent of meeting, that they may stand there with you. And I will come down and speak with you there. And I will take some of the power of the Spirit that is on you and put it on them. They will share the burden of the people with you, so that you will not have to carry it alone. And God comes through, does exactly this. In fact, there's a couple of elders from Israel who don't show up at the meeting, And, like, you know, God's spirit comes down, the elders start prophesying, and these guys who are still out in the camp start prophesying too. Like, God just, like, comes through super hard in spades, and then he sends this feast of quail to eat, but they also get a plague. Anyway, it gets a little complicated afterwards, but the short version is God does provide for the people, for for Moses, like this leader who's struggling with this burden. So, I think, from the perspective of the ancient Jewish disciples, um, the apostles response is for one pretty moderate there 's not a lot of "Oh, we wish we were just dead like and it 's also within bounds of what they would expect from the people who are leading god 's people, and they know that they, they know because of this story that things can 't all rest on one person or twelve people for a growing community. They understand that Long-term, that's not sustainable. God's power and authority has to be spread out. Another reason I think they would have been pleased is this quote that we put up on the intro slides every morning. You don't give people dignity, you affirm it. I think it's important to point out that when the apostles addressed this, they actually called on people from the Hellenistic Jewish community to step up and to, to be in this position of leadership. I think that's one very practical way uh, you can do that. Okay, so that's why I think probably Luke isn't glossing over things when he says the whole community was pleased. But maybe you're still skeptical, right? Maybe you're still not buying it. You're like, yeah, I, I, think, I think the apostles were really just setting themselves up for a cush job while somebody else did the hard work. And so I want to enter into that question um, with this ancient skeptical tool. It's a two-word question. Who benefits? Right? If the apostles are really trying to set themselves up as a kind of like leisurely, lazy, priestly caste, what would we expect to see? Like if that were true, how would that play out? Well, you'd probably expect to see that they were keeping tight control over the church. You would probably expect to see um, the Hellenists kind of marginalized and pushed to the side while they, you know, kind of tried to keep things in house, keep things under their control. While they didn't do any of the difficult work that they were kind of distracting the masses with. But what actually happened? Well, of these seven deacons, um, we have big stories in the Bible of two of them. Uh, First, there's Philip. Oh, not that Philip. That's Philip the Apostle. He's one of the twelve. Not him. Not that Philip either. Nope. Still not that Philip. (laughs) This guy. There's a lot of Philips. Philip the Evangelist. Um, So he's one of these seven people, and he actually gets more screen time in the book of Acts than Philip the Apostle. In fact, Philip the Apostle didn't even get named in that passage. He's just one of the twelve, right? So Philip is the first recorded apostle who goes back to Samaria, that place where Jesus famously ministered to the woman at the well and John, Philip's the first apostle we have on record as going back there and fulfilling that part of the Great Commission that says, you'll be witnesses to me in Judea and Samaria. Oh, and the ends of the earth. This picture here where he's baptizing the Ethiopian eunuch. Like, Philip's kind of on the cutting edge of evangelizing the world. Now, some of these other, uh, five of these fellows, we don't get a lot of stories about in the Bible. Uh, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, uh, Parmenas, Nicholas. Um, Ancient Christian traditions do have some stories about them. Uh, Nicanor was probably martyred, though it's a little unclear where. There's conflicting accounts. Um, Nicholas, it mentions, is a proselyte from Antioch, which is interesting because that means he was a Gentile who converted to Judaism, and now he's converted to the Christian way as part of a spiritual journey. So that's noteworthy, at least. Um, Timon actually says it became a bishop. That's interesting. And then there's Stephen who, spoiler alert, uh, would go on to give the definitive sermon on how the ancient Jewish tradition is continuous with Christianity. All that stuff from Moses that I was talking about earlier. Stephen's the one who really, in the book of Acts, gets like the long ranty sermon where he connects the dots from you know God creating world to the resurrection of the Messiah. And Additionally, his story and his martyrdom, Stephen becomes the first person to die for the Christian faith. I mean, I guess outside of Jesus, the first disciple to die for the faith. His story actually sets up the conversion of Paul, who will kind of turn the church upside down and inside out with his evangelism of the Gentiles. So of the Christian culture and tradition that we inherit today, much of it is because of these seven fellows who were made deacons right here. If the disciples were trying to be selfish and give themselves power and control at the expense of other people, they blew it. Like They did exactly the wrong thing if that was their goal. Um, And I think some of that is because of just what they did uh, when they laid hands on these deacons and they blessed them and, and they were effectively saying, we want God's spirit to be on and with you. I think it's just part of the nature of God and God's spirit that you can't really share it with someone and retain control because God is going to have a purpose in that. God is going to have an agenda and a vision that far exceeds and far outstrips any immediate idea that you had when you were blessing that person for ministry. I think there's even uh, a kind of counter perspective we might have. What about these seven deacons? I mean, they showed up to wait tables, and they became evangelists and bishops and martyrs for their faith. And I I don't think it's too far of a stretch to say that we are the heirs of this tradition. We are the people who are called to wait tables, and we are the people called to devote ourselves to the word and to prayer. Maybe one of those is on your plate more now, than the other. Um, maybe you, you're doing a lot of practical service. Um, maybe you're, you're serving in like a leadership role. But I think God's model is to make that when you're doing that, and when you're serving in one capacity, that makes space for somebody else to come along and do the thing you're not doing. And I don't think I have to look far in this church uh, to see people doing this. I mean, w- we say this a lot, but this is not a church that really needs to be told <laughs> that the church runs on volunteers. Um, people here serve, and they serve hard, and they serve a lot. Um, I mean, a very like personal, concrete example for me is just uh, the people who helped count the offering um, Ryan and Renee, and the people who get it out the door into the bank, Anthony and Lacey. Um, I could not do this thing I'm doing today if that was just me doing that. <laughs> like If I was doing that every Sunday, I would not be preparing sermons. And because we have this loving community, I happen to know that you know, some of you kind of like it when I preach, which is nice, thanks, It makes me feel really good. But I, I can't do that without at least four other people running interference on this other job that needs to get done if there's going to be a space for me to come do this. I also don't think we have to look far to see people in our church who who need the kind of support that the apostles asked for here. I mean, I I think I can say this without it being a backhanded compliment as as pastors go, we got a workhorse, right? <laughs> like we we got somebody who is constantly and I can say this because he's not in the room, so I'm not going to embarrass him. But like we got somebody who is I think very diligent about taking care of stuff, um, doing the kind of humble work, the kind of Chores of the church. Um, but I also think it's fair to say that, like, Josh could probably benefit from people stepping in, taking some of that stuff off his plate. So if you're wondering how to do that, um, or e- even if I think, even if you're a person who's already serving, uh, I'm not trying to lay a burden so much as just to say, hey, there's this opportunity. Um, the first one is. Um, the this Wednesday, uh, on Wednesday night, for a f- next few weeks, there's going to be a meeting at the church called Be the Vineyard. Starts at 6 p.m. This meeting is meant to be this kind of like deputizing event, right? I think this is going to be one of the ways that uh, Josh is going to try to raise people up, make sure they have the opportunities to serve in their gifts within the church. So come to that. That's a thing you can do. Um, Another thing is when you have grumblings um, because things aren't being run well, and you're gonna because there's gonna be times when things aren't being run well. Um, the, the typical advice I think um, for people to give from leadership is just like, just keep it to yourself, right? Suck it up and deal with it. But I, I don't think that's the right answer. I think that what the Hellenists did in this scenario where they said, hey, we have a problem. Like, widows are getting overlooked, this isn't okay. We need to fix it. Like, I think that's good, and I think people should do that. Just be ready, particularly if, like, there's a group of people who have a grievance, and you feel like they're kind of pushing you forward to talk about it. Just be ready to be called to serve, because odds are good. Um, that's, That's kind of, you know, the community trying to work out its problem, and you may be the best person equipped, because you're inside of it. Um, the last piece of advice, and I think this applies equally well to people in leadership, um, check your blind spots. Uh, if, you're, if you're in a leadership position, it's easy to miss when this kind of injustice is happening under your nose. Um, I think it's just kind of human nature that when you live in different neighborhoods, or you send your kids to different schools, or you speak a different language, even people who live very close with you go to the same church as you. It's the easiest thing in the world to leave them out when you should be including them in the life of the church. So, that's the practical application point. Um, at this point, um, the, the band is going to come and play one last song. Um, if any of this is like setting your heart on fire, if, if you're hearing this and you're like, oh, I really think that was for me, uh, and you want prayer about that, just come up. Uh, we'd love to pray for you. Um, if there's anything else that God has laid on your heart, uh, God does way more stuff on a Sunday. Oh, and the baskets. I never, ever called for the baskets. I, like, publicly thanked you, and then I was like, oh, yeah, offering. Anyway, that was supposed to happen a long time ago, but Renee's on it. So <laughs> um, if uh, if this is, uh, you know, your church home, give as, as God has called you. Um, yeah. So, thanks. If you'll help Renee get the baskets passed around, and then let's stand and worship God.